And yeah, take all that and put it into your perspicacity pipe. And smoke Matt. it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and smoke it. Like the finest the- weed from the Shire. Welcome to another kid-tested, mother-approved episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. He a former Baptist pastor, and I was a D-less Christian indie rocker. We both ended up in the Catholic Church. That sounds a little bit strange, but hopefully you can go back through some of the old episodes and figure out some of the thought processes. We're going through those thought processes here on On the Journey. If you want to find out more about the Coming Home Network, which produces these, then by all means, give us a visit at chnetwork.org. Also subscribe. We would love to hear from you and love for you to share um, the the brilliance of, of Ken, not so much me, with your social <laughs> networks. Ken, how you doing? I am doing really good. And that was a, that, that was a creative adjective today. Compound adjective, it's yeah. four or five or six terms. So, so you're, you know, you know, you're doing well. Precept upon precept, as you say. Line uh, upon line, so, like, like the uh, Bible says. If this were a serial drama on television, this is the part where we would say previously on on the journey, and that's when you would kind of launch in, yeah. catch everybody up to where we are right now. Yeah, and I got to start by saying once again that we're still in the weeds, okay? Because we're talking about the doctrine of imputation, and we're talking about the biblical support for it. Um, but but there is light ahead in the tunnel, you know, because the next episode that we do is going to, uh, my attempt is going to be to do a just a crystal clear summarization of all the basic steps that led me from um, a, a total embrace of the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone, sola fide, um, to the Catholic doctrine, which we um, tongue-in-cheek refer to as a damning system of works righteousness, Okay. Here's where we are, here's where we were. In our last two episodes, you and I looked at the idea of imputation in the Old Testament, and basically we concluded that it isn't there. And so those watching, listening, you got to go back to the episodes to hear that, okay? In fact, when we think about what is actually taught by the Old Covenant sacrificial system, and then as well by direct statements made by Moses, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, all of them point in an entirely different direction. All of them teach us, trying to summarize it here, all of them teach us that when God finally acts in Christ and in the new covenant, when God, as it were, stretches forth his arm to act, to solve the problem of his people's inability to love him and keep his commandments, he's not going to solve the problem by legally imputing righteousness to their accounts. He's going to solve the problem in this way. He's going to make atonement for their sins. That's the sacrificial system. He's going to forgive them for their sins. And he's going to give them the ability to do what they could not do. That is to love him, to keep his commandments, and live, as the promise is stated so many times in the book of Deuteronomy and and elsewhere. This is the path to life then. Atonement for sins, forgiveness of sins, and the ability given to us to actually love God, to walk in his commandments, to persevere to the end, and see life, eternal life. And to okay. 
cheat ahead to the Catholic perspective on this, Catholic teaching is that faith is itself a gift. So even mm-hmm. that faith is only a response. It says there's a great passage in the beginning of the Catechism's treatise on prayer in that fourth section that you know nobody can pray unless they have already unless God has already made the first move toward them. Every prayer, yes. every every move is just a response to what God has already done first. No, and I appreciate very much you coming in and bringing in the things that since I'm kind of driving forward in a summary sort of way, I'm I, I'm not collecting up all these side issues always and covering them. So thanks for adding that, okay? This is the path to life, and it's all by the grace of God. We're going to see the power of God, the Spirit of God, the grace of God, including the gift of faith. Okay, to put this in the context, Matt, of my own story then, it's, it's kind of like this. I mean, first I find the conceiving of justification in terms of a legal transaction, you know, that takes place and is totally completed the instant we first believe in Christ, conceiving of justification that way created all sorts of tensions for me in my attempt to read the Bible, but especially the New Testament. In particular, it's in tension with so many passages that so clearly in the New Testament present eternal life as contingent on our persevering in faith and the obedience of faith to the end. So I face that. Then secondly, I learned from our good friend, Protestant scholar, Alistair McGrath, that the Reformation conception of justification as legal imputation had never even been contemplated, he says, in the first 1,500 years of Christian thinking, Christian theology, Christian history, brand new with Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, and the others. Then I conclude, and this again was our last two weeks, that there's nothing in the Old Testament to support the conception of justification as legal imputation. In fact, there's nothing in the Old Testament to support it, and there is nothing in the Old Testament descriptions from the prophets of what God will do when the new covenant comes, you know? So the old covenant doesn't support it, and the promises of the new covenant don't support it either. There's nothing about imputation there. There's just nothing. And, and so, uh, at, just to, to double back yeah. on that, when you see how God deals with his people in the Old Testament, what you see is them offering sacrifice for atonement, and they are forgiven. It is not them offering sacrifice, and then the, the justification yeah. and righteousness is imputed to them by means of that sacrifice. Even in those primitive... Old Covenant yeah. ways of dealing with God, yeah. it was actual forgiveness. Yeah, it was it was forgiveness. And then when Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the prophets come in and they say, yes, but look at what God's going to do in the future, the focus is on forgiveness, and the focus is on he's going to change you. He's going to give you a new heart. He's going to put his spirit within you. He's going to make you righteous, okay? So at this point in my um, narrative, in the narrative of how this happened for me, and this is many years ago now. It was definitely time to re-examine the New Testament case for imputation, okay? Now, I wanted to make sure, Matt, that I was wide open to whatever arguments could be made in support of imputation, and I I thought I already knew them, in fact, by then, but I wanted to be wide open, and so I didn't just do my own study. I grabbed from my bookshelf John Murray's classic work, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied. John Murray, a very famous Reformed theologian of uh, past century, 20th century. And I turned to his chapter on justification and I began to uh, creep through it. Now, given that the Reformation view was the only view I'd ever known, and that I assumed and had always assumed that this is the view that was clearly taught in the New Testament, 
okay? I was especially um, keen, if you will, to approach the evidence this time with an open mind. I wanted to be like a theological detective examining the case as though I were examining it for the very first time. Um, after all, there is a proverb that was popping into my mind, uh, one of the Proverbs of Solomon that says, he who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. And that's so true, isn't it? Oh, man. The uh, you first know, argument you hear for anything always sounds right. And with that, uh, Ken, you should, if you had the same, even if you didn't have the mm -hmm. Reformation assumption of imputation when you went back to it, you should at least have the Reformation assumption that it would be perspicacious so that whatever the Bible said yes. would be clear. Yes. You just came back and looked at it with a fresh set of yeah. eyes. That is exactly right. Perspicacity of Scripture, one of the fundamental um, ideas embedded in Sola Scriptura, okay? So yeah, I did have an assumption that it was taught, and I certainly had an assumption that if I go to the New Testament and look at it, that I'll see clearly that it is taught. But I wanted to examine it, all right? So the first thing I noticed in reading Murray's chapter on justification is that he could point to no passage in the New Testament that actually describes justification as the legal imputation of Christ's righteousness, okay? That, that's point number one. Instead, in fact, he begins his discussion by explaining that this is a truth, but it's a truth that has to be inferred from other truths that are clearly taught in the New Testament because it's not stated anywhere. And then now, you know, I want to say, to be fair and, and, to, and to be honest, this is not a deal breaker. I mean, I look at the carpet on the floor of my, of my office here, and I infer that there's some kind of foundation beneath it, you know, because otherwise, how do I explain the fact that it's really flat, and then when I walk on it, it doesn't bend down, you know? You know? So inference is fine. Inference is a valid form of reasoning. Um, but it's worth noting, I think, in this case, given that Paul's ministry involved him in almost continual debate, as you and I have seen, over this issue of justification and, you know, are we justified by faith in Christ? Are we justified by works of the law? What is it? Given the fact that Paul's ministry was consumed with this question of justification, if imputed righteousness really was the heart of Paul's doctrine of justification, you know, it does seem a little strange that he never got around to simply saying it. You know, when we are justified, the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to our account, something like that. Well, and it's especially strange because so many other things that are at the absolute core of the Christian faith are said clearly by Paul, such as the primacy of the cross in the understanding of yeah. our salvation, um, uh, the the importance of bearing fruit in the Spirit in the Christian yeah. life, uh, all kinds of things, uh, the importance of living holiness and, and departing from evil deeds. I mean, these are all core things, and uh, the you know, the whole nature of, mm -hmm. of what it means to follow Christ, to die to ourself, those are all at the core, um, and Paul states them repeatedly. So if this is as central yeah. to the understanding of salvation as Reformed theology argues it is, it would be nice to have Paul just say, like, just one sentence clearly about it in the entirety of yeah. the New Testament. Yeah, you know, as we've seen in the past, this is conceived as being so central that Dr. John Gerstner, um, you know, writes— that chapter in which he says that he couldn't really believe that Scott Hahn was even a Christian once he realized that Scott had turned away from this doctrine of justification. Essentially saying that so, if you yeah. get this inference wrong, yeah. you've gotten everything else wrong as well. Yeah. Now, just to, I mean, I don't want to muddy the waters too much, 
But uh, I don't know how often you've been in debates with people where you're talking about something that we believe is Catholics that isn't clearly stated in Scripture, and we say, well, but from the way that things are stated in Scripture, it can be inferred that this is the mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that those Reformed people don't ever give me the benefit of inference <laughs> you know, on those things. Um, yeah. But inference is, as you say, it's not a deal breaker. Um, there no, are plenty I mean, of things. The Bible's not an exact like manual of every no. aspect of the Christian life. It's what's I mean, necessary the for The classic example is the doctrine of the Trinity, which is inferred Perfect, from, yeah. from a number of passages and never stated. We believe in one God eternally existing as one God in three divine persons. It's not stated. And that's why I say inference is a valid form of, um, Perfectly of reasoning. There, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just simply commenting on the fact that given that this is absolutely so central to Paul's ministry, it is at least interesting that he never states it. That, that the best that we can do is say that it's inferred from various other things that he states. And that's what we're going to dig into now. In fact, there are so many passages, though, I, I kind of have to throw in this caveat. There are such a tremendous number of New Testament passages that touch on the question of justification that to cover them all, we'd basically have to exegete the entire New Testament. We just have to sit here and start working verse by verse through Galatians and Romans, Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, everything. A lot okay? of Greek would be involved, Ken, a lot of Greek. Yeah, a lot of and my Greek, Greek okay. is bad. My Greek is very bad. I, like I always say, my Koine Greek is more like Kanye Greek. It would be a bad in day. In Kanye's Greek, I I haven't heard it, but I he spits it fire. Okay. So what I want to do here is, is this. What I've done is I I want to look at the kinds of passages that Murray sets forth because there are kind of groups of passages, the sorts of passages that John Murray cites as inferring in his mind the doctrine of imputation and and comment on them. Okay, the first one is this. First, Murray sees imputation as inferred in Romans 1, 16 and 17, where St. Paul says that in the gospel, now I'm quoting, the righteousness of God is revealed and the just will live by faith. Okay? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, Paul says, and the just will live by faith. Now, this is where it began for Luther as well. In fact, here's how Luther described how he came to understand that this passage in Romans chapter 1 was teaching the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Here's Luther. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice or righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God, or justice, righteousness, they're the same words, okay? So just think of them interchangeably. Same same word in in Greek. Dikaiosune is the word justification. It's the same word. Then I grasp that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through sheer grace and mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Now, there's there's a lot of detail here that we'd have to you know spend some time on, but I can pull it together by saying this. Here's the question that came to me, Matt. Let's assume that Paul is saying here exactly what Luther says that he's saying. Let's assume that Paul is saying here that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is that righteousness which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us, by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us. Here's my question. How does Luther know that this righteousness is being legally credited to those who believe? What if Paul means that God's righteousness revealed in the gospel is being imparted to those who have faith? And that's a very good question, Ken, because when Luther says 
uh, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and it's the righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Every Christian who's not a Reformed Christian is saying, so what's the problem? Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so what's the it, issue? Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it, it, we it, all believe true. that. So what is it Luther thinks is like, aha, but actually, that's making yeah, his how theology different than anybody else in the first 1,500 years of Christianity. What is he saying that's different based on that? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's why my question, how does this equate to an inference of the legal imputation, the legal crediting of righteousness? So what, what struck me at this point was that Luther was reading imputation into the passage, and so was John Mercy, uh, John Murray, and and so were Reformed theologians um, as a group reading imputation into this passage, because what Paul actually says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, is simply that God's righteousness has been revealed in the gospel, and that the just or the righteous will live by faith. Which every Christian, including Luther's most strident opponents in Luther's time, would affirm. Yes. And so let's move forward, because you'll see this pattern uh, recur again and again. Second, Murray cites a number of passages that describe justification or righteousness as a gift. That, that, that's another kind of passage. All kinds of passages where righteousness or the gift of justification is described as a gift, like Romans 5.17, where Paul speaks of, of the free gift of righteousness, quote-unquote, the free gift of righteousness. Murray sees the idea of legal imputation as inferred in these passages. And again, I ask, but why? I mean, Catholics also believe the justification is the free gift of God. So do Pentecostals, so do Wesleyans, yeah, so do Orthodox, so do Anglicans, so does everybody. Catholics simply understand the meaning of justification differently. We understand it as that God is making us righteous or actually imparting righteousness to us, whereas the Reformed view sees God as crediting righteousness to us. But how is either position you know, necessarily inferred from the simple fact that it's a gift. You know, Catholics will point to the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, one of my favorite Old Testament passages, and Catholics will say, this is God's free gift to those who believe. And what does it say? I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Obviously, it's God's gift. I, God says, will sprinkle clean water upon you. You shall be clean from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit. Yeah, I'm emphasizing, obviously, I mean, all the way through this passage, it's, I will do this, I will do that. I will give you my spirit that will cause you to walk in my ways and and be careful to observe my statutes. It's all a gift. And, and as you said, everyone understands this, except for the, maybe the most hardcore Pelagian out there somewhere. In other words, though, for Murray to cite passages that describe justification or righteousness as the gift of God and infer from these passages the doctrine of legal imputation is, again, to simply read into the passages what he's thinking, you know, the idea that he's already got in his mind and already believes. None of the passages require such an interpretation. No, and these passages that Murray uses to argue for uh, the doctrine of imputation are passages that are all over the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 
It's yeah, just they don't quoted. They're quoted all over the place. It's the difference yeah. is that Murray and Luther and uh, MacArthur and the rest have said, no, this is the specific delivery method. Yeah, this, right? this is what is meant. Yeah, yeah, this is right. the delivery method. Okay, in fact, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament that describes righteousness as a gift of God or a gift from God is Philippians chapter 3, okay, verses 7 through 11. Now, as I read this passage, Matt, I want you to ask yourself, does Paul give us any hint in the text? Does Paul give us any indication in the text of what he means when he thinks about uh, the gift of righteousness from God? Okay, here's the passage. But whatever gain I had when I was a Pharisee, when I was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, the flinty knife, the whole bit, okay? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, working hard and earning salvation or believing that because he was born a son of Abraham, he has it made. Okay. Not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that, that is having a righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What do you think, Matt? Does Paul, in the text, give any indication of what his, where his mind goes when he thinks about this gift of he righteousness? Says, I, he's essentially saying, this is taking every part of me and turning it over to Christ, that I may be made more like Christ, that I am being transformed, right? That everything that I was you know, trying to do through these jumping through the hoops or considering myself a child of Abraham, I have now said, you know what? I'm going to be a child of God because I believe and love Jesus Christ. and it, Nothing in this says to me that Paul is like, I have yeah. been crucified with Christ, therefore he has imputed his righteousness to me. I have not actually done anything, you know, to, to make myself particularly helpful. I could never do it anyway, so I'm wearing this, you know, snow <laughs> blanket over say? myself. Were you going to say Jesus costume again? <laughs> sneaking into heaven in a Jesus costume. Um, uh, uh, I'm not doing know, any of that. No, this is this is Paul's entire being being overhauled. Yeah, and uh, let, let me say it like this. That, that, that's the right answer. Well, thank you. I was okay. trying really hard to say what I wanted. I thought you wanted me to say. Well, no, you're saying uh, everything you're saying was good. You know, um, I mean, the Jesus costume thing. Okay, I've never heard that before. And it's certainly a, a very pejorative way of, of describing what is conceived as being a, something so beautiful that Christ's righteousness would be legally credited to us, okay? But no, your description here of Paul and what he's thinking, yeah, it, it, it's all true. The way it came out in my mind is, it, it, or I'll put it in the reverse, is that notice that when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God that depends on faith, he doesn't move immediately to that I may have Christ's righteousness imputed to me. You know, where his mind immediately goes, that's what really tells us what he's thinking is he says the righteousness of God that depends on faith that I may, that I may know, know him, him, you know, yeah. that I may and the know the power him. of his resurrection that I may become like him. And then that last phrase in order that I may attain to the resurrection, you know, the idea of perseverance again, sounds more like the Catholic view of justification here than the Protestant. 
I mean, there's nothing here about imputed righteousness unless you simply read it into the passage again. And not to skip ahead too far, but when you walk, uh, walk through the Church Fathers and you see this whole concept of divinization, that you really are becoming yeah. like Christ the more that you know Christ. And, and that's, a, that's a process uh, through which you, you conform to him more deeply um, over time. And, and even Paul alludes to this uh, in, in various places as well. You know, not that I've attained all of this, but I press on. Uh, in, in the letter yes. to the Philippians, he says this as well. Yes. Divinization, I mean, it, um, isn't the word theosis that is used in the Eastern churches, Eastern Catholic, Eastern Orthodox? Theosis, the idea of being, you know, becoming, you know, God's divine life being injected into us and us becoming like, like him. Okay, but another group of texts. Okay, now, um, after this, Murray points out that the verb to justify in Scripture does not mean to make righteous but to declare someone to be righteous. And he sees this as inferring the idea of imputation as well. And uh, let me develop that a bit. He, he begins by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 1, which is the usual passage that is gone to for this reason. If there be a controversy between men and they come unto a judge, they come unto judgment, that the judge may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And the point is, when a judge justifies the righteous, you know, he isn't making the righteous righteous. And when a judge condemns the wicked, he isn't making the wicked wicked. You know, he's declaring the wicked to be wicked, and he's declaring the righteous to be righteous. He's making a declaration. And in the same way, John Murray argues, and this is standard within the Reformed position, when Paul says in Romans 8, 33 and 34, Quoting now, God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. The point is, he's not talking about God making us righteous in this sentence. He's talking about God declaring us righteous and not condemning us. Okay? Quoting from Murray, the meaning of the word justify, therefore, in the epistle of the Romans, and therefore in the epistle which more than any other book in, New in, in Scripture unfolds the doctrine of justification, is to declare to be righteous. Its meaning is entirely removed from the thought of making upright or holy or good or righteous. And that's all good and well. If you come at this passage with the presupposition that the primary way in which God deals with his people is as a judge deals in a courtroom. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's part of the that's part of the issue is you're taking the judge and saying that's the, that's the standard. But let's allow this for now. Okay, let, let's allow this for now. Because um, a point is being made that when a judge justifies someone, the judge isn't like reaching across, you know, from the, from whatever it's called, you know, the, the bench and the ju making the, judge the person, seat. you know, righteous. Yeah, the judge seat. And, uh, and, when he, and when he condemns the wicked, he's not reaching across and making a wicked guy wicked. So the idea of declaration is an important idea. But in response to this, two points I need to make, okay? The first is this. There are instances in the New Testament where the verb to justify does seem to speak of a real internal change being wrought in the person, okay? And there are two of them I want to point to. The, the first one is Romans 6 in verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And 
here's the thing. The verb translated here, freed, is the past tense of the verb to justify. So what Paul is saying is anyone who has died has been justified from sin. But the meaning is so obviously trans, you know, transformative that the, interp- that the translators all translate it have been freed from sin. Anyone who has died has been freed from, from sin. So Paul is not talking about a declaration here. He's talking in Romans chapter 6, in fact, the context of this verse. He's talking about how in baptism, the power of sin has been broken in our lives so that we are no longer to be slaves to sin. He's talking about how you and I were raised with Christ, resurrected with him through baptism to walk in newness of life. He's talking about us being freed in this context, the entire context. He's talking about us having been freed from the power of sin to live a new life by the Spirit in Christ. And in this context, he says, he speaks of us as having been justified from sin. So it definitely sounds in this context like he's using the verb to speak of a real internal change of it being powerfully freed from sin. Correct? Something actually happened instead of you just got a very fortunate sentence. Yes, yes. It cannot be taken to to mean a, a declaration in this case. And there's another verse that does the same thing. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It's one that I really like. Listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and he goes on with some others. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Okay. Paul says you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the Spirit of our God. And now, here's where, as a Reformed kind of guy and Protestant, I'm kind of scratching my head over this passage, because if the Protestant view of justification is true, and that's what Paul has in his mind, we would would expect a couple of things. We would expect Paul to put justification first in this list. That's to begin. That's what I would have expected. I would expect Paul to say, you used to be sexually immortal and idolaters and adulterers, but you were justified. That is, Christ's righteousness was legally credited to your account by faith alone. And then you were washed and sanctified by the Spirit of our God. This is what we would expect. I, I would not expect Paul to mix, you know, like in a salad, to mix up washing and sanctification and justification, put them all together, list justification last in the order rather than first, and describe all three as being the work of the Spirit. You know, none of it makes sense. It just doesn't make sense in that context to think that Paul has in his mind legal imputation. Right. I mean, I'm looking at this list and the way that you pointed out, I'm trying to think of like an image that would make sense to, to, you're going to shoot down all of my analogies to what Reformed theology is about, (laughs) because as you know, I grew up Wesleyan Arminian, but it'd be like a house. Uh, You would expect if, if the Reformation theology of justification and sanctification were true, it would be like saying, perhaps you were bought at a short sale, you were remodeled, and then you were flipped, right? (laughs) Well, no, that's not that bad. You're just saying that it's, the words don't the make worst. sense. Right. Well, you were redeemed, right? The and then we the fixed words. you up, right? You were a junker, and then we like, you know, repaired your engine, and then we put you out on the road. Well, you know how they say about all analogies limp? That's true. 
And yet, some of your uh, Methodist Arminian background analogies not only limp, but are in cardiac arrest. They are. But that one's uh, but that one was pretty good. good. But that one was pretty good because you're you're simply making the point that if you heard that sentence, you would think, wait, these words are not in the right order. You know, <laughs> there's something. There's something well, wrong. But again, this goes back to something that we keep on bringing up over and over is that this question of imputation and this question of being reckoned as righteous mm-hmm. and the intentional separation between faith and works uh, of the law and, and the, 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 the desire to split all these things up is taking mm-hmm. things that were all kind of thrown in a salad throughout Christian history. I mean, not all of them, no, but in a, a good, sense. That There's is a good point. Yeah, stuff that was always taken both. in a whole and then taking a piece of it out and pitting it against the rest of the salad. That is, uh, yeah, you're taking my salad and you're... How many metaphors do I need to mix here, Ken, to get my point across? Even a, even a salad. Okay. To sum up, though, okay, so far, what I simply want to say is by looking at these two passages in Paul from Romans 6 and from 1 Corinthians 6, it simply is not true to say that to justify always means to declare someone to be righteous. We find at least these two places where the verb form seems to imply a real interior change. But now let me flip it the other way. Okay, even if we assume that it always does mean to, to justify, you know, a declaration, even if the verb to justify does most often mean to declare one to be righteous, I'll go further. Even if it always meant to declare someone to be righteous, the inference being drawn that justification is legal imputation still doesn't follow from the premise. And this is what I mean by that. After all, God could be declaring us righteous because he has begun the process of actually making us righteous through the grace that flows from the cross of Christ. You see what I'm saying? Even if it always meant, or even if it always had this declarative thrust, you know, you are justified by faith in Christ. God could be saying, I'm declaring Matt just because I have changed him and I have imparted righteousness to him and I've begun the work of remolding him perfectly into the image of Christ. Once again, the idea, I mean, once again, the, the idea of imputation is being imported into the interpretation. Because when a judge declares someone to be righteous, he does so because he sees that that person across the bench is actually being in the right. God could be declaring us righteous in the same way because he actually sees by his grace righteousness in us. So essentially, so Luther is actually the judge in this scenario and he's imputing validity into this doctrine of imputation. Maybe that doesn't work as well either. But again, Ken, well, it's it's this idea. Okay, there is a, analogies can limp, analogies can be on cardiac this arrest. This one can just fell off the cliff. It just fell off the cliff. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. But again. But I know our hearers are bright enough to. Um, to forgive me. Together. Hopefully. <laughs> Maybe they'll just declare me righteous instead of having to actually forgive me. Uh, but, declare, you, declare you brain dead. But uh, to, to bring it all back again, Ken. This flies in the face of something else. You're saying inference here and, and inference mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. but isn't this supposed to be perspicacious? It sounds to me like it's perspicacious yeah. as long as you know Greek and or have Luther or MacArthur or Murray to explain it all to you 15 times until you get it. This doesn't seem to me like the clear on its face understanding of how this is all supposed to work. Yes, you're back to the issue of perspicacity 
And it's true. If if Murray can begin his argument by saying, okay, look, it's not stated anywhere. This is not, Paul doesn't say this anywhere, but it can be inferred. And then we look through the various sets of passages or the various kinds, groupings of passages that he that he sets forth as inferring. And we realize that it's only inferred if you import the idea in there that that the Catholic view can be inferred from those verses just as easily as as imputation, then yeah, where is clarity? Where is perspicacity? And okay, but I need to say this. There, there are a lot of other passages that are involved, and I hope to touch on them when we come to summarize the Catholic view of justification in a couple of episodes. But the important point here that I just want to drive home in terms of my own story, because I was doing this, you know, some years back, I was working through this and trying to understand it. What I found was that imputation appeared in every case to be an idea that had to be read into the text. It, it had to be, um, it had to be imported into the text. It had to be imputed to the text. Never did it appear to be actually required by any of these texts. And therefore, I'm not sure how anyone could try to present this as the clear teaching of the New Testament. In fact, and here's sort of like the another shoe falling for me, but I think another shoe falling for anyone and everyone, it turns out that the actual, the actual unambiguous evidence in Scripture, the scriptural support for the idea of imputation is so thin that a number of Protestant New Testament scholars, and again, I need to repeat, a number of Protestant New Testament scholars in recent decades have come out saying we should abandon the doctrine of imputation. It's not even taught in the Bible. Okay? And I want to quote from Robert Gundry, who wrote a now very famous article on this. This is what Protestant scholar taught at Westmont College here in California for many years, the doctrine that Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers to, excuse me, the doctrine that Christ's righteousness is imputed to believing sinners needs to be abandoned. The doctrine of imputation is not even biblical, still less is it essential to the gospel. It's not even essential, he says. Then he says, the notion is passe, neither because of Roman Catholic influence, not because of Roman Catholic influence, nor because of theological liberalism. Okay, he says, the notion, the idea of imputation is passe, and it's not because of Roman Catholic influence, nor is it because of liberal Protestant influence. It's passe because of fidelity to the relevant biblical texts. That's what Robert Gundry says. It's wrong because it's just wrong. It's wrong because it's just wrong. the Bible says so. Because the Bible doesn't teach it. And it's not just Dr. Gundry. Famously, N.T. Wright is another influential, in fact, probably one of the most famous Protestant New Testament scholars in the world, he believes the doctrine of imputed righteousness is not really the teaching of St. Paul. James Dunn is another. There's an increasing number of Protestant scholars falling into line and joining these ranks. In fact, to the point to where Gundry can say this, this is part of his same article, other recognized scholars could easily be added to this list, so many, in fact, that it would not exaggerate to speak of a developing standard in biblical theological circles. Translate that for the everyman. Robert Gundry, a Protestant New Testament scholar, says there are so many Protestant New Testament scholars coming on board to agree with what I'm saying here that I wouldn't be exaggerating if I were to say that there is a, a new biblical standard developing 
within biblical theological circles, within Protestant scholarship. So at this point, what I'm saying to myself, Matt, and many years ago now, I'm saying to myself, just trying to add these things together. So the doctrine of imputation had never been contemplated until the time of the Reformation. Check. So it creates all kinds of tensions within the Old and New Testaments themselves. All kinds of problems. Check. Nowhere does Paul state the doctrine. Check. And none of the passages from which it is supposedly inferred seem to require it. Check. No wonder it took 1,500 years, is what I'm saying to myself. No wonder it took 1,500 years for someone to find it. And that makes it sound like it was not rather found, but invented. Yeah, and then now Gundry can come along and say, oh, and by the way, there's a new developing standard now among biblical, Protestant biblical theologians to argue that the idea should just be jettisoned. And yeah, take all that and put it into your perspicacity pipe. And smoke Matt. it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and smoke it. Like the finest but, weed from the Shire. Yeah, yeah, because remember, it is at the heart of Sola Scriptura is the idea that Christians should not be bound to believe anything that cannot be shown to be clearly taught in the pages of Scripture. And, and this is the article upon which the church stands or falls, as Luther said. This is the hinge upon which the door of all true religion swings, as Calvin put it. You know, this is the doctrine that is supposed to, that is supposed to lead me to condemn the Catholic view of justification as a damning system of works. Well, that's a lot of questions to ask at the end of an episode, Ken. So they're where are we, rhetorical. They're rhetorical. Where, where are we going next then with this? Well, I was going to say another episode, but, but I won't. You already you already pulled that on me once, man. Yeah, it, but, but it was funny. We laughed at the time. Yes. Um, it's almost as funny the second time. Well, it, it, it's funny to remember remember it the second time, remember the first time, remembering the first time. Um, where are we going? Oh, okay. I basically have laid out the structure of the story of how I came to think the Reformation doctrine sola fide isn't biblical. It isn't true. And what we're going to do in our next episode together is try to very clearly and neatly summarize that whole thing, okay, that case against imputation. And then we're going to turn right around to say, well, what is the New Testament doctrine then? Let's summarize that. What does it say? What is the New Testament view, which is the Catholic view? Well, that's a tall order. And I'm, I'm here for it, just so you know. You're ready. I'm ready. With analogies that limp. With, with, with all kinds of analogies that'll make you want to just pull your hair out and then you'll be bald like me. Well, Ken, now, I'm glad for this time together. I'm glad for this time together every week. If you're glad to participate in these discussions and listen along with us, then we encourage you to subscribe. Uh, tell people about the Coming Home Network. Uh, visit chnetwork.org. And if you're on any kind of journey of your own, maybe you're like Ken and uh, you're studying all this stuff and thinking, there's something that's not right here, and what Ken's saying sounds like the stuff that I'm wrestling with, then please reach out to us at the Coming Home Network. We would love to hear from you. chnetwork.org. Ken, thanks so much. Talk to you next time around. Thank you. We'll see you, Matt.